chapter 1, and we'll be starting in verse 15. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ is the center and that if we have Christ, we have all things. That if we have Christ, we have all that we need, all that we could ever uh, desire. And we just ask that you would help us to have a larger view of Jesus today. That by seeing a larger view of Christ, that our lives will be truly transformed, that as we walk with you, that we would keep Christ at the center. So please speak to us now through your word, and give us ears to hear what you have written in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, read with me, starting in verse 15, we're going to go through verse 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present him holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. Well, this text that we are looking at today is a natural progression from what Paul has already said, which obviously we're not going to read or cover this morning. Um, but Paul is writing this letter to the Colossian church. And this is not a church that Paul personally planted, but it was one that was planted through his ministry, through one of the, his co-workers, Epaphras. And this church has been established for a little bit of time now, and Paul is writing to encourage them and to help them to have a large view of Jesus and to keep him at the center. You see, there was some sort of heresy that was being taught and, and, and promulgated in the Colossian church. We don't know exactly what that was, but it was something that took away from the centrality of Jesus Christ and diminished the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul is writing here to show the Colossians and us that Jesus is the center. Jesus is supreme. Jesus has preeminence. He has first place. And he wants us to understand that if you have Jesus plus anything, you actually lose Jesus and the gospel. If you have Jesus plus something 
else that is needed, not only for salvation, but for sanctification, for growing in your Christian faith. If you need Jesus plus something, you have just taken away from Jesus. Anything added to Jesus actually subtracts from Jesus. And so this morning, we are going to look at what's known as the Christ hymn, a uh, hymn that was probably used in the early church, but that the Apostle Paul adopts here and reworks as part of the letter, something that the early Christians would say and believe about Jesus, and that he wants all Christians for all time, what God wants us to know about Jesus is who he is and what he has done and to keep him at the center. The Apostle writes that we need to know that Christ is first, that he is supreme. He is supreme in creation and he is supreme in redemption. The first part of the hymn shows us that Jesus Christ is first. He is supreme in creation. When it says here that he is the image of the invisible God, he is saying that that Jesus is the one who tells us what God, what God is like, who God is. The he here is obviously referring back to Jesus. He is referring back to the last verse, 13, where he said he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, talking about the Father. So the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this he that's going to be exalted here is the Son of God. He is the one referred to in the beginning of the letter as the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear this big view of Jesus, that he is God, we have to remember that this Jesus, who is God, became man and lived in history in the first century. So Paul is writing to here to to a church living in the first century at the very time that Jesus lived and telling them that this Jesus of Nazareth is in fact this God who is exalted in the heavens. That's a startling claim. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus who lived and walked and breathed, who ate food, who slept we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth who was put to death on a cross and who rose from the dead. And God wants us to know that this Jesus who lived in history is none other than the Son of God who is the image of the invisible God. What a startling claim about a man who lived in history that he, he is in fact God, very God. The question that is before us today is who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Who is Jesus Christ? Who is this Son of God? If we have a view of Jesus that does not come from the Word of God, then he is a Jesus made in our own image, and therefore a God in our own image. But the Jesus that we worship is the Jesus that the apostles tell us of in the word of God. And so who is this Jesus? Is he, uh, is he 
the one who is able to save you from your sins? Is he the one who is able to fulfill your every need and desire? Do you need anything else other than Jesus? That's the question that is being asked today. And the Holy Spirit would have us understand that this Jesus is the image of the invisible God. See, the scriptures teach that God is a spirit. Jesus told us this, you can read it in John 4, 24, that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit, in truth. That means that he does not have a physical form. He is not a creature. He is, God is not a man. He does not um, have a physical form that you can see, but instead he is invisible. He is unknowable to us unless he makes himself known, which he has in his creation and most perfectly through his son, Jesus. In John 1.18, it says this, No one has ever seen God, the one and only son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. In 1 John 4.12, it says, No one has ever seen God. In fact, it says in another place in Scripture that that if you were to, if sinful man were to see God, he would die. No man can see God and live. But the great joy that we have is that the God who is invisible has revealed Himself to us through His own Son, Jesus Christ. He has revealed Himself in many ways, as Hebrews says, and at various times through the prophets and the. And, and through the, the, the scriptures. But he has most definitively revealed himself and his character, making himself known through Jesus Christ. One theologian said once that there is no God behind the back of Jesus Christ. That is, there is no God who is unlike Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus and he shows us exactly the character and attributes of God. He, uh, in Hebrews 1.3 it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus reveals the Father. He rebuked those Jewish leaders who did not recognize him when and, and asked about him. And he said, if you know, if you want to know the Father, if you know me, you know the Father. If you see me, you have seen the Father. One of the greatest errors that is propagated many times over is that God the Father is somehow different than God the Son. That the God the Father in the Old Testament is all full of wrath, and then Jesus comes in the New Testament and is full of grace and truth. But in fact, it is God the Father who gives us the Son. And so the, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, shows us the very nature of God. John Calvin said this, The sum is this, that God in himself, that it is is in his naked majesty is invisible and that not to the eyes of the body merely but also to the understanding of men and that he is revealed to us in Christ alone and we may behold him as in a mirror for in Christ he shows us his righteousness 
his goodness, his wisdom, his power, in short, his entire self. We must therefore beware of seeking him elsewhere. For everything that would set itself off as a representation of God apart from Christ will be an idol. You want to know Jesus? What God is like? Then we look at Jesus. We are told that he is the image of the invisible God. Now when we hear this, see this phrase, the image of God, we of course would think of Genesis 1, right? Man is made in the image of God. And his likeness. But see, there's a difference here. Man was made in the image of God and after his likeness, but Jesus is the image of God. He's not made in God's image. He's not after God's likeness. He is God, very God. He is the image of God. We were made to reflect God, to be the image of God in the earth, but God's Son is the eternal image after whom we were modeled. We were made to represent God's likeness, but Jesus is God's likeness in visible form, making God visible to us. And so Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father. His relationship with the Father is not like your relationship with the Father, because he shares the very same essence with the Father, himself being God. He is the image of the invisible God. And so he declares what God is like. He has a unique relationship with God. And so how much higher and exalted can you get than being the image of the invisible God? But Paul goes on. He is the firstborn of all creation. So not only does Jesus have a unique relationship to the Father, he has a unique relationship with creation. He is the firstborn of creation. Now this phrase can and has been misunderstood if we take it out of context. It may appear that it's claiming that Christ was created, that he was the first thing to be created. And in fact, this is one of the first heresies of the early church that caused great trouble. A man named Arius taught from this verse and a few others taken out of context that Jesus Christ was a created being, the first of God's creations. He said, this is a phrase that he used, if the father begat or gave birth to the son, he that was begotten had a beginning of existence. And from this it is evident that there was a time when the son was not. That was the phrase that the Arians used. There was a time when the Son was not. And there were many who were deceived by this teaching, and it has become known as Arianism, and which is claiming that God created the Son out of nothing, and then the Son created everything else. One of the men who battled against this false teaching was a man you've probably heard of, Athanasius, who stood against this false teaching and Many called him Athanasius against the world because there were so many that had begun to believe this false teaching that he was one of the lone voices that said, no, Jesus is not created by God. He is God. When it says that Jesus here is the firstborn of creation, to to interpret this as meaning that God created him is a severe misinterpretation. 
this passage. When Paul says here that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's using the word firstborn metaphorically. In ancient culture, it was understood that the firstborn took preeminence in the family. He was the, the firstborn son was the one to whom the inheritance would go, and he held a special place. The Old Testament uses the term firstborn in the sense of status. David is called God's firstborn in Psalm 89, 27, even though we know that he was the youngest in his family, that he was called the firstborn. The meaning is that he, is the, he was the first among all the kings of the earth, not that he was the first in his family. And like there in Psalm 89, Jesus is called the firstborn of creation, not because he was the first of created beings, but because he takes first place. He is supreme in creation. He gets top status. In fact, we could translate the phrase firstborn of creation as firstborn over creation. The fact that this means that he is the firstborn over creation, that he is the, takes first place, is clarified by the, the next phrase. For by him all things were created. That for tells us what the phrase was there for. That he is the firstborn of all creation. He gets this first place because he created everything. The for is the basis. The fact that he is the firstborn is that he gets preeminence is because all things were created by him and for him. There is no one higher than Jesus because he made it all. Now remember, don't lose sight that this Jesus who is the Son of God is the very same Jesus who was born in Nazareth in the first century. And what we would need to know about this Jesus who lived and breathed is that Jesus is the one who created everything. What a startling claim. And of course he gets first place if he created it all. All of creation owes its existence to Jesus. You owe your existence to Jesus. Without Jesus, you would not be. Without Jesus, we would not be standing here. Everything that was made was made in reference to him. Everything that is seen and unseen. Look at that in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus created everything that you see and everything that you do not see. Jesus made it. He made the depths of the sea. He made the heights of the mountains. He made all the creatures that dwell on the earth. He, he made from the, the greatest of them to the smallest. He is the creator of mankind. He is the one who formed Adam from the ground and who took Eve from his side. He is the creator of every life in the womb. And he is the creator, as we see here, of everything that's invisible, of, of the soul, of every spiritual being. All of the angels were created by him and for him. Nothing at all, not one thing, has its existence apart from the creative power and sustaining power of Jesus. Nothing exists except that he willed it. 
He is the first in all of the creation because he is the source and the sustainer. Embassy Church, that is the Jesus that you worship. That is the Jesus that we gather here to sing about and to read the word about is the Jesus who is first in all creation. There's no president, no political power, there is no country, there is no um, philosophy, there is nothing that is that is greater than Jesus. Everything owes its existence to him. Not only was everything created through him, everything was created for him. He's not only the beginning of all things, he is the goal of all things. Notice that it said through him and for him. You exist for Jesus. You exist for his glory. This world exists for the glory and the fame of Jesus. This world exists for him. So he gets first place. Anything that relegates Jesus to secondary is false. Anything that relegates Jesus to taking some form of second place does not understand that Jesus is the goal of all history. That Jesus is the goal of eternity. Jesus is exalted now in heaven and will be exalted forevermore. Jesus is the goal of all things. One commentator, Douglas Moo, said this, The vision of Christ in relationship to the creation is thus comprehensive and reminds us that for those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. They know that their Redeemer is also creator, ruler, and goal of all. You see, when you have an exalted view of Jesus, you understand that you have great hope and joy in the world if Jesus is for you. Jesus is the firstborn. He is the, the supreme. There is no one higher in creation. He made everything, whether seen or unseen. And it was made not only through him and for him, but also he holds it all together. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The fact that he is before all things means that he takes priority in time. There is no one that can claim to be before him. He is the most ancient. Uh, there is no beginning to him, so he is eternal. And his wisdom is beyond what any philosopher, no matter how far back in history they can claim to draw their wisdom from, Jesus is wiser. Jesus has supremacy in time. And he holds everything together. Listen, if Jesus right now ceased to exist, which is impossible, you would cease to exist. If Jesus ceased to hold the world together, it would dissolve in a second. Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus who lived and breathed, the Jesus who's the Son of God, the Jesus who you worship is the one who is holding everything together. 
You don't get any more powerful than that. Not only did he create it all, he's holding it all together. There are any concerns about climate change or wars or difficulties or the, the end of the world, none of that will occur until Jesus says it's going to occur. Because Jesus holds it all together. So Christian, you can have hope for tomorrow. You can know that, that the, the, this world will endure as long as Jesus says it will endure. And so you do not have to fear because Jesus holds it together. What an exalted Christ in creation. You can know this morning that in all the world there is not one thing or one person that you will find that is better or more superior to Jesus. There is nothing in this world or in creation that you can find or worship or give yourself to that will bring you the satisfaction that Jesus can. There is no one that is worthy of any of that worship other than Jesus because there is no one greater than Jesus. But not only is Jesus first in creation, he is also first in redemption. He is supreme in redemption. Look at the next verse here, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. By this, Paul means that Christ is the governing member of the body. He has all authority in the church, and he provides all of its life and substance. He takes care of us. He leads us. He is our God, who we worship. This means that Christ has ultimate authority, authority over his church. There is no higher authority in the church than Jesus Christ. There is no head besides Christ. Head means the, the leader, the, the one who has authority. And in the church, there is no other head other than Jesus. The Pope is not the head of the church. The pastor, and I'm sure your pastor would not mind me saying this, your pastor Phil is not the head of the church. The head of the church, the only head of the church, is Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign head of the church universal and this church local. Christ rules over his church. And you know the beautiful thing about Jesus? The thing that brings great joy to our heart is that he rules over his church with love and tender mercy. Who is more humble and lowly than our Lord Jesus Christ? Who carries our burdens and is so patient with us and kind and loving than our Lord Jesus Christ? I would want no other head of the church than the Jesus who is. There is no one better to rule the church. There is no one who has the wisdom or the ability to do it like Jesus. And he is the head of the church. And he provides for the needs of his body as the head. Jesus is the head of the church. And he is the beginning of the new creation. We already saw that he is the firstborn of the creation. But here we are also to understand that, that he is the, the beginning of the new thing that God has done through the gospel. He is the firstborn from the dead. 
He is the founder of the new creation. This is the hope of all the saints, that God is making all things new. That when Jesus returns in his glory, he will establish a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more sin, there is no more rebellion, there is no more pain or sorrow or tears. And the beginning of that new creation began when Jesus rose from the dead. So not only does Jesus take first place in the original creation, because he made it, he also takes first place in the restored creation. Jesus Christ at his resurrection inaugurated a new age and he brought about a new creation in which the old creation is restored and put back into right order. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and that means that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul says that same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. You can look there at some point. He tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection that we will all partake in because Jesus paid the way. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, none of us would rise from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection is unlike any other resurrection that happened before because it was the resurrection into a, for a new creation. Jesus was in a glorified body. Others were resurrected, like Elijah resurrected the widow's son. Or Jesus resurrected Lazarus. But they were resurrected to die again, right? They didn't live forever. It was a miracle that showed the power of God and his authority. But the resurrection of Jesus is eternal. The resurrection of Jesus is enduring. The Jesus of Nazareth, who died on the cross and rose from the dead, is currently ascended in physical form in the heavenly places, seated at the right hand of the Father for you, interceding. And when Jesus comes back, he will still be in the resurrected body. And we will see the nail prints in his hands. The Revelation describes Jesus as the lamb who had been slain. We will, he will bear the marks of his suffering he will, in a physical body. He does now and will forever. And Jesus is the first of all the resurrections to come. I've been at a number of funerals in the last year and I've informed a number of them. When you see a body in the casket, you know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. But it's the way it is. It's the way it is because of sin. But if we have the hope of the resurrection, we know that that body that we put into the ground will be raised up on the last day because Jesus rose from the dead. And so those who die in Christ die with hope. And what higher exalt way could we exalt Jesus in redemption to, to know that he is the firstborn from the dead. He gets first place in the church in redemption. No one who's raised on the last day will be able to say that they did it in their own power or that they get a supreme status. Only Jesus gets to claim that for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. And he, did, he was the first to rise from the dead so that in everything, he says here, he might be preeminent. Not so that he might be preeminent in some things, like creation, 
But in all things, Jesus Christ is supreme in all things. He takes preeminence. He takes first place. We must never try to take the place of Jesus or to put something else in his place. He is to always have first place. As I said in the beginning, any gospel that adds something to Jesus actually subtracts. Because only Jesus can have the preeminence. This is God's plan from the beginning of time, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, this is verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus, was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Now, we've already said that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is the exact imprint of his nature, that he is God, very God. So it seems a little repetitive, but what we need to understand here is that he's talking about the fullness of God's presence. The, the hope for the believer is to be reconciled to God and be restored to his presence. What was lost at the fall was dwelling freely in the presence of God. Adam and Eve dwelled with God in the Garden of Eden. And after they sinned and fell, they were cast from the garden where the presence of God was dwelling. It was as a temple where God's presence dwelled with man. And the whole story of redemption is about God restoring man into right relationship with God so that he may be in the presence of God. The whole purpose of the tabernacle and later the temple was so that the presence of God could dwell in the midst of the people. God's presence was manifest in the Holy of Holies. And now we can see that that presence that was located in the temple is actually located in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to have the fullness of God, if you want to know his presence, then you have to know Jesus. There's nowhere else by way that you can know the presence of God, that you can be restored into fellowship with God, than through Jesus. If you lived in the Old Covenant, you would need to go to the temple, to the tabernacle. And to offer the sacrifices needed to worship God in that way. But now Jesus, who is God, very God, is the embodiment, who, when he took on our flesh, he is the embodiment of the fullness of God. And so if we have Jesus, we have the presence of God. And Jesus said he would not leave us as orphans. Maybe you're thinking, oh, but Jesus is in heaven right now. He said he would not leave us as orphans, and so he sent the Holy Spirit so that the church, filled with the Holy Spirit, is the temple of the living God. And if Christ is not the head of the church, then we do not have the fullness of God dwelling among us. But since Jesus is the head of the church, and we need to keep him there in our hearts and in our worship, then we can know that the fullness of God which was pleased to dwell in him, is among us, is with us. Jesus is first in redemption because the fullness of God dwelled in him. 
And it's from that fullness that he pours out his presence among his people. And all of this was that through him, he might reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now this is a big view of salvation here. This is not just thinking about salvation as a personal thing, but that the goal of redemption is that Jesus would restore all things. There is not one thing on this earth that Jesus is not seeking out to restore to its proper place. He had come to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. So that is the things that are seen or the things that are unseen. Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, and he made that peace by the blood of his cross. There is hostility between God and man. There is hostility between sinners and a holy God. There is not peace between sinful man and the holy God who is. There is not peace unless it comes through the blood of Jesus. He made peace through his blood. He removes the hostility between God and man through his blood. And the scope of Jesus' redemption is that he would make all things new. Now does that mean that Paul is teaching here universalism? Universal salvation, that there will be none condemned, that there is no judgment? Well, no, it's actually going to become very clear when we look at verse 21. But there is not one inch of the world that will not be set into right order when Jesus is finished. Now his work is finished on the cross. We live in the already, but not yet. Jesus has already won. Jesus has already made peace by the blood of his cross. But now as the gospel is being proclaimed, we live in the already, but not yet. That is already finished, but it is not yet manifested. It is not yet brought to completion. That will happen with the new heavens and the new earth. And when that is all done, when, when, when the not yet has occurred, there will not be any more rebellion against God. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more rebellious angels who are demons. The devil will be in the lake of fire. And all those who have opposed God will be there with them. Unless, of course, they have come to God through the blood of Jesus. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross so that he might reconcile all things to himself. And that, this big picture, now we've had a big picture of Jesus here. He is first in creation, he is first in redemption, and he's restoring all things. It's cosmic, it's huge. What Jesus is doing is not a small thing. What Jesus has done has ramifications for all of history and all of space and all of time. What Jesus has done is much bigger than you. That's one thing we need to get from the Christ center. Is that what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done is much bigger than you. He is much more important than you. He is much bigger than you. The gospel is more than about you. It's much bigger once the Apostle Paul has got that established, 
He then wants us to see that it is personal. That this Jesus and his supremacy, both in his person and his work, is so that you, who were once alienated, this is verse 21, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This Jesus, this exalted Jesus, in his supreme work, did that for you, for his people, for his church. How could that not humble us? How could that not cause us to to think of the tender mercies of our Lord Jesus. Who are we that he would love us? Who are we that he would be for us and not against us? When we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Do you know what God has saved you from? Is, do you know that this is what is in your heart? apart from the redeeming work of Jesus, that you were alienated from the life of God, that, that you were alienated from this Jesus from whom there is no one higher and no one better, that, that you were alienated, and not only alienated, so that you, know, you weren't just distant from him and not knowing him, but you were hostile in mind towards Jesus. Maybe you say, I, I don't want to say I was hostile. Well, anything point that you were not submitted to Jesus and his authority is hostility towards Jesus. You were hostile in mind when you were living, doing evil deeds and do, doing what did not please him. If Jesus is this exalted and this supreme, should we not live all of life for him? Should we not live all of life according to his authority and what he has told us in his word? We once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But this exalted Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So he humbled himself. The most exalted humbled himself to the point of death. So that, in order that, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This highly exalted Jesus humbled himself to the point of death so that he might present you who are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds and rebellion against him. He humbled himself to death so that he might then present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Who's the only one who's holy and blameless and above reproach? Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can claim those things from start to end. All we can say of ourselves is that we are alienated, hostile mind, and doing evil deeds. But through the work of Jesus, he gives us his righteousness and presents us, who are all those things, holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father. What a, what a Jesus we have. What a Lord we have. What a Savior we have. We well, I'm getting ready to close. I know, I know we're running out of time here. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shift, shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, 
became a minister. It's not a place you necessarily expect to find a conditional clause in Scripture. He just told us about the exalted nature and work of Jesus. He showed us how this Jesus reconciled us to himself by the blood of his flesh, by his death. And then he presented us holy and blameless. And then he says, but there's a condition to this. Remember I said before, it wasn't teaching universalism. This makes it clear. The condition is if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Now you might say, I thought that if Jesus saves you, you're saved. There's no not being saved once you're saved. There's no falling away if you're really in Christ. Theologically, I'd say that, yeah, you're correct, but there's still a condition here. So what do we do with the condition? The condition is that you must persevere. I, I believe you guys believe here that in the perseverance of the saints, that, that those who are in Christ, Jesus no, does not, will not lose any of his own, that they will endure to the end. But listen, you have to endure to the end. You have to persevere in the faith. If you abandon Jesus, if you deny Jesus, if you turn to another gospel, then there is no assurance. There's no assurance for you if you turn to another Christ or another gospel. But only if you remain steadfast in Christ can you know that he will present you holy and blameless and approach before the Father. It is a warning to the church to remain steadfast and to not shift away from Jesus at the center and the gospel. And all those who are truly born again, all those who do belong to Jesus, guess what? You hear the warning and you heed it. You listen to it. And those who maybe attend church or um, have Jesus but want Jesus plus their good works, they want Jesus plus their sin, they want Jesus plus their, 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 their worldly philosophies, well, there can be no assurance unless you have Jesus at the center. We cannot take a, our good doctrine of perseverance that Jesus will preserve us until the end and use it as an excuse to be lazy in our walk before God. But instead, we are to take serious the fact that Jesus is to always be the center. And if we ever lose Jesus as the center, then we lose everything. If we diminish Jesus from being supreme, then we lose all hope for tomorrow. But if we keep Jesus in his exalted place and we don't shift from the faith that has been handed down and proclaimed through the apostles and is, is continued to preach, be preached in this church by your pastor Phil, if you continue to hold to that gospel and you look to that Jesus and you keep him at the center, then you have all the assurance you could ever need. If you, don't, if you lose Jesus, then you have nothing. But if you keep Jesus in his rightful place, you keep him supreme, you keep him in the first place, you know that there is no salvation outside of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved other than through Jesus. 
If you keep him in his proper place and you don't try to add anything to Jesus, then you can have full assurance that you will be presented holy and blameless before the throne of God on the day of judgment. Do not shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard, because it is the gospel that is your only there's one thing I would have you walk away with today, and it's that apart from Jesus, you have nothing. Nothing else will be able to satisfy you or give you eternal joy other than Jesus. Money and possessions cannot do it. Sex and pleasure cannot do it. Food and drink cannot do it. Pride cannot do it. Self-made religion cannot do it. Even your own marriage and your family, it cannot do it. Only Jesus at the center can give you all that you need that you need. And if you have Jesus at the center, then you have the fullness of God in bodily form. You have the fullness of God, and from him you have all fullness, and you have hope for tomorrow. So remain steadfast in this hope. Do not believe the lies and the temptations that come your way a hundred times a day that you can have hope or satisfaction anywhere other than the supreme Jesus. He is preeminent. There is no one above. There is no one better. He is to be glorified in the church forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in ignorance, that you have not left us alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but that instead you have revealed to us your Son, Jesus, of whom there is no one higher. And we ask, O oh God, that this morning that we would all have Jesus in his proper place. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, that he would have first place in our hearts and our lives. And that you would be exalted in us and in our worship. And so we ask now, Lord, as we continue to worship, that our hearts...